Welcome to the Money and Soul Podcast with your money expert, Michael Feiner, and your soul expert, Rabbi Dr. Baruch Halevi, Rabbi B. In this podcast, we will explore hot topics, complex issues, and proven strategies at the intersection of our lives where the financial meets the spiritual. Yes, they can intersect. Yes, we need them both. And yes, you can grow financially and spiritually. And in this podcast, that is exactly what we will empower you to do. And now, on to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Money and Soul podcast. We're excited to be continuing this journey together, myself, with my good friend, Michael Feiner. Michael, good to see you again. Good to be here, B. Yeah, where is here? I am working out of our Naples, Florida office this week, helping some of our snowbirds from New England relocate to Florida. Sounds great. Sounds like the perfect time of year to be there. It is a little, little, little chilly in Boston right now. Well, a little chilly here in Denver, Colorado, where I'm at too, but, but lovely, chilly and lovely. So, um, yeah, so it's great. We're um, going to be talking today about what we're calling true wealth, so much more than what's in the bank. So I know that this is obviously a topic that you probably talk about daily with your clients, right? Not just the uh, dollars and cents, um, but what's behind those dollars and cents, which probably is going to be part of every conversation we have because it's such an important conversation. What is wealth? No, it, it, it is the number one conversation in my business because most of our business is focused on the quantitative part of wealth, measuring if someone can spend money, accumulate money, and reach their goals financially. Yeah, and it's certainly you know the, the foundation, the starting point, but as you know, uh, it's just not enough. It's never enough, no matter how far you move the decimals. Everybody wants to keep moving them, but at some point, it's got to be about more than the decimals. And I work with many of your clients. I work with my clients on this very issue. You know, like how do you go deeper than just those pixels on the screen, those those dollars in the bank? And that's that's what we want to talk about. And and you know, it's obviously a hard um, conversation to have. It's hard. It's a hard definition to to. It's a hard thing to define because I looked it up in the dictionary, and here's what it says about wealth. An abundance of valuable possessions or money, the state of being rich, material prosperity, plentiful supplies of a particular resource, a plentiful supply of a particular desirable thing. I don't know about you. I hear one resounding theme in that definition. Well, you see, I was struck by the value of assets, and it's it's really talking about counting you know, wealth and, and from a financial perspective, it seems like. Yeah. And again, uh, of course, that's an important foundation, but it can't be the only thing. So what is wealth? And that's what we need to dive into today. Um, you know, there's lots of challenges to this. I know I was thinking about it. wealth is relative, first of all. Um, if I had as much money in the bank 20 years ago as I have today, I would think I am wealthy. By today's standards, I keep moving towards a uh, target tomorrow, 
right? I mean, my family's grown, my lifestyle's grown, everything's grown. But back in the day, I had very little. But what I had, you know, when I was on my own, I felt uh, I felt wealthy. I felt like I had a lot in the bank. It's not something I really sat around. You and I didn't start planning my retirement when I was 20-something years old. That's exactly right. Everything is comparatively relative. Money is relative to your circumstances and to whom you're comparing your wealth to, your your future goals and whatnot also. I wonder, um, you know, if in the, the, the billionaire circles, it probably must be the same. I mean, I don't know who, who you work with. Uh, that's privileged information, but I imagine working with a billionaire, right? There's still some, there's still some benchmark outside of him or herself that they're measuring themselves against. Um, yeah, it's interesting when you when you propose this topic of true wealth, and we talked on the last podcast about wealth and whether it's tangible or intangible, sort of in the definition. I realized that. In many ways, wealth and the tangible part of it and the quantitative part of it for the people that we work with is a function of the creation and how they measure themselves more than it is about is it enough money to live. Like you said, when you're 20, if you had as much money as you do now, you feel very wealthy. But it becomes almost a metric, a yardstick or a measurement of what you've accumulated mm -hmm. and sometimes comparing it to others. Cause like you said, if you were to go to a third world country with this type of wealth, you'd be wealthier than 99.999% of people. Mm -hmm. But if you're down, I happen to be, you're in Denver. I'm in Naples right now. Uh, I drove by the Naples airport. There were probably about 15 private jets sitting on the tarmac. That is, is interesting when it comes from, you don't feel quite as wealthy when you're driving by hmm. a private jet. Right. But I noticed there were different sizes of private jets too. Exactly. So maybe, maybe the uh, one billionaire versus the 20 billionaire feels, feels different. That's true. But I think most importantly, what I found with, with the wealth piece of it you get to a certain point where obviously you don't need the wealth for day-to-day -day living or for retirement or for your personal needs. It becomes uh, a measurement of the creation process. Yeah. When you said that about the, uh, the jets, I don't have one yet, um, but I do have an RV and I just started this RV process like a year and a half ago. And it started out with the travel trailer. And, you know, to the outside of it, that all sounds like the same thing. Like it just, it, nobody knows. And it did to me too. And then you get into it. It's like anything else. Then you start going around the, you know, the, the, the campsites and you start looking at, man, I need, I need that one. And it's already, I'm on my second one because I already got caught up in this, uh, you know, more. Now, now part of it is because we've, learned and we found out that we want to invest in this and it's we're serious about it and we want a better quality uh, experience but part of it too is i gotta out in the middle of nowhere keep myself from walking around and getting caught up in materialism up in the rocky mountains where i'm trying to escape it in the first place it's craziness that it is fascinating from the perspective of 
part of it's probably the challenge that you have a perfectly unbelievable RV, but you wonder what the next thing in the RV, what technology or what extra function you might have. Not that it really adds that much value to life, but just the, the, the endorphins that you get thinking about is your, your satellite TV and the RV have like 700 channels and all wheel drive. And I know they expand in 12 different directions and, I don't know if your experience is that much better than it was when you, I remember you used to go camping in tents. Didn't you start out in tents? First you started in tents. Yes. Now you're in a gigantic RV. So it's true. Um, I don't know what the experience different. It's probably warmer in the RV. I'm just guessing a little bit, but it's, it, it's certainly a different experience. And I don't know if that, you know, when you're doing stuff like that, of course, that's about maybe just the different experiences. And I think what true wealth can drive to a little bit is allowing you to experience more things. That's right. My son says to me, he's 19 and he's like, I don't get it. Right. This thing holds like, I don't know, maybe 60 gallons of, ga of diesel. And then he was doing the math on what diesel costs these days. And he's like, he does the math and he adds it up and he says, you know, we could buy a plane ticket for this trip. And he's missing the point. I said to him, that may be true, but you're in the realm of math in this conversation. And I'm in the realm of experience because I like the experience of going up into the mountains and having the freedom to, hey, let's go here for a night. Let's go there for a night. To me, that's valuable to other people. You know, my uh, some of my friends look at me like I'm nuts. It's not. It would be um, not a wealthy, abundant experience. It would be a, a, a lacking experience. So partially it comes down to, you know, how do you what are your values and are what you're doing, does it line up with your values? This is a values conversation as much as anything else. That's a very important point. And to the extent that your children are going to get really an amazing dividend from that two or three day experience of outdoors, of traveling across America at this point, and in, in doing that, I'm not sure you're going to get the same experience on Delta <laughs> that you are driving across America in the scenery, you'll get different experiences on the airplane for sure. But like you said, you know, the, the, the ability, the ability to have true wealth, if there were only a way to quantify experiences, right. And that's the hard part to money is easy to quantify. And maybe that's why it's a default piece or the default way to count things because it is countable mm -hmm. experiences to your definition are intangible and those are really tough to measure but that piece of measuring the intangibles and the experiences are really so so important because you, you mentioned in the last podcast that people don't remember the money, they don't remember the gifts, they don't necessarily remember things, but they remember the time they spent with their grandfather or their father or their brother or sister. The experience, they remember the experiences. And I, I thought about that since the last podcast, and that's so true for me. The Especially when I think back at my grandparents, uh, who, you know, no longer here, but doing the little things with them, what it was all about, never about money. Yeah. Um, 
one of my best memories is of my dad who passed away years ago is um, we went, we we're in Omaha, Nebraska, as I mentioned, I'll try to work it in every uh, episode. I get paid by the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce of Omaha, Nebraska for saying that. Um, just kidding. Uh, we went to the um, Omaha College World Series every year. That's where the World Series, College World Series is held. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And it was a pretty amazing experience back in the day. It was called Rosenblatt Stadium. And anyways, we went to a doubleheader, but we only went for the second game. And it went into like extra innings. So we're just sitting outside forever. And I remember my dad was frustrated because his goal, you know, the, the measurable experience was to go to the game, to see the game with his son. And we were like outside for like an extra hour or two. I don't know how over long it was, but we just sat there. And I was, I remember just sitting next to him and we were playing in the grass a little bit with sticks, whatever. And 40 years later, that's my memory. And that's priceless. And at the time, it was a throwaway moment of the evening. Right. And it wasn't the major experience. I don't know how much you paid for tickets. I don't know how much you paid for hot dogs. None of it mattered. We sat outside, had a free experience. And I carry that as one of a, the, the most peaceful memories that I have of him now that he's gone. Who could have seen it? That it's remarkable what's imprinted from these experiences, especially if you can relate the top experiences and what you can't quantify that in financial terms for sure. But that one experience could be the most valuable memory that you have of many things. When you mentioned baseball, I mentioned my grandfather. It was my grandfather who took me to my first Red Sox game. Hmm. And the, the part that I remember, I don't remember who they played. I don't remember. I remember it was a hot day, but I, what I do remember, and this is the, the part that said so much about my grandfather um, he took me out of school that day mm -hmm. to go to the Red Sox game. He, he came to school and said that I got a call on the intercom. I was like second grade. I was pretty young, first or second grade. And they called me out and said, uh, come to the principal's office, which in those days could have, <laughs> you know, I wasn't as well behaved, shall we say. Like, oh, I'm in trouble again. Is my grandfather there to take me out of school? I had no idea why. I thought something serious happened. And he, he drove, played hooky, basically, him from work and me from school. It was like 11 in the morning. Those days, the games, you know, it's a 1 o'clock game. We'd go to Fenway Park and eat the horrible hot dogs, which is my first experience, and do the game. And I just remember playing hooky with my grandfather for just getting a, a, you know, a laugh out of it as – to this day, you know, 50 years later of, of an experience like that. Uh, and that's true wealth. But I can't quantify that to say, what would I trade that for? Nothing. There's no amount of money, that memory. I, I think about it often. I see the Red Sox or get I, I get a laugh out of the, the lunacy because then, of course, my mother went crazy that it's his daughter that he <laughs> did that. But he was about experience, and I don't. And I think I may have shared this with you before, because I, when we talk, I know Victor Frankel is your teacher and thing. But you know, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. My grandfather mm. from from Auschwitz. Wow. And I think he, um, he died when I was fairly young, a teenager. But in retrospect, I can see why he left work 
him wanting to take his grandson to the Red Sox game in the middle of the day and have that experience based on what he had experienced from a negative perspective. He never talked to me about any of those experiences, by the way, you know, the Holocaust experiences. But in retrospect, looking back at him, because he was probably about my age now that I am now when I was little of him yanking me out of school to go do all this. And, and that has a lot of interesting reflection for me of what he was thinking at the time to, to do that. Cause I don't think it was as simple as let me just take my young grandson to the baseball game. He, I'm sure, you know, of course this is the seventies. Right. He, he wasn't as far removed as we are now from those experiences. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure it was, um, I'm sure it was just one of those memories that you'll carry with you forever because of what it represents. And, and probably he did too, you know, the freedom to be able to just go and pick up his grandson and take him to a ball game. You know, it can't be understated or I imagine for somebody having uh, gone through the Holocaust where it was the a absence of freedom. I, I suppose. And, and he was a fanatic Red Sox fan. He had his little black and white TV and watched every game. I remember him just always calling them bums. <laughs> of course, in the 70s, they didn't win much, right? Except like 75. I remember 75. Was, but to, to, to your point, it's made me reflect a little bit more on the definition of wealth um, from the perspective of where is your true wealth? Mm -hmm. So picking up on that Holocaust piece, you know, as you stated, I'm a student of Viktor Frankl, who's author of Man's Search for Meaning, 33 other books on uh, meaning-centered psychotherapy, which he uh, created and coined logotherapy, which means meaning therapy. I'm a logotherapist. And Dr. Frankl talks a lot, a lot, a lot about this issue in... Um, in the Holocaust. And what's interesting is when he describes joy or happiness, having that even in the Holocaust, it's over the littlest things, but it's relative. So it's, you know, they're, all they did was talk about food, being hungry. He, he says it was one of the most dehumanizing things about the Holocaust is never having food and always being hungry and being reduced to only ever being able to think about food. If, you, if you've gotten fasted for a day, like on Yom Kippur or, you know, for any reason, it's, it's a long period of time. Now imagine constantly being malnourished. But what he talks about is they would find a, a breadcrumb or a rotten potato. And he felt like the wealthiest man alive in that moment to have an extra potato. And it's just so hard to process when Amazon came to my house three times today, literally. Like it was some poorly planned logistical thing that when we ordered and all three, but constantly like at the, my fingertips, I received Amazon packages to the point where I didn't even notice by the third time it came. And here was a man who got an extra rotten potato in the middle of the week. And it, and he describes it feeling wealthy, which has always stuck with me. That is, that is powerful. And it does speak to the anchoring effect of money, where you've been, where you've come from, where you're going, how you look at it is I, I suspect None of us two years ago would have been too excited about hearing about a roll of paper towels or toilet paper until we couldn't find one at the supermarket or 
whatever the toiletry was, for example. Right. It's mind boggling until, until you don't have it. Right. And um, from the perspective of, of wealth, sometimes it is good. And I'm wondering for, and you can reflect upon this for Yom Kippur. It is a day of reflection, partially because you're focused on not eating and the deprivation does help give you some reflection. It's hard to have true wealth if you have too much wealth in a way because there's no need for anything. And that in itself can, can be a problem. Not so much gluttony. I always wrestle with this. If, if you have too much wealth, not that it's a bad thing, but you become numb in, in many ways, financial wealth. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Can you have too much other types of intangible wealth in the intangible plus the tangible equals this true wealth? But how do you look at that? And more importantly, how do you help people get to their intangible true wealth? How do you know when someone is there? I, that's the part that really is hard for me as a numbers guy. How do you help someone understand that part of it? It's easy. I can quantify your balance sheet. Mm -hmm. I can't quantify your experiences on the asset side, good experiences, or more importantly, which I know your, is your expertise, the liabilities. If you've had harm to your life, how do you really, how does that affect your total true wealth, the liability side? So, you know, I never want to romanticize poverty because there's nothing um, spiritual or enlightened about not having enough. Right. It's the converse of having, you know, so much you'll never be able to touch. It's not bad or good. It, it, it inhibits oftentimes um, the ability to have that freedom that your grandfather worked so hard for to be able to give to you. And he came to this country and, you know, built, rebuilt a life and he had enough, uh, you know, to be able to have the freedom to go out with his grandson, buy tickets to a ball game. Um, so you need enough. But I guess the question is always, what is enough? I, I've done 500 funerals, as, as you know. It's ridiculous how many funerals I've officiated at. And people always, when they, when they talk about the person, when they eulogize the person, it always comes down to what was underneath the money. What was under, you know, the, the money was important to buy the Red Sox tickets, but it was the experience of going to the game or the vacations took or the it was a means to an end. We had that conversation. We've had it a couple of times already. And I think that that to me is the key is to just keep coming back to it's important as a means, but a means for what? And there's never an answer. It's not like it's a means to, you know, fill in the blank. Now check the box. I'm done. It's just constantly staying in conversation about what your money is for, right? What the, what is it a means for? And that means changes. You know that when you're working with me at 25, and you're working with me now at 50, those are different means to a different ends. And you've been helping me over the past almost 20 years now, coming back to this conversation, thinking about, you know, what am I working towards right now? What do I want? What are the experiences I want to have? So I think you do a very good job of having these conversations beyond the numbers and decimals. You are more than that and you do help me and others get to these conversations. That's what I like about you so much. You're always so encouraging and positive. So thank you. 
what you've helped me understand is the idea of abundance means so many different things. And abundance, like you said, at age 25 or 30, at that stage, maybe you're starting a family or want children, and you're not abundant if you can't make that happen. Uh, at age 90, I suspect that abundance means good health for most people. Money is rarely the issue, whether you have it or not. Health is probably an issue. And trying to get that continuum of reflection, that's the piece that you've given me, which is to really reflect. And we talked a little last time about maybe the ancient wisdom or the Old Testament, New Testament, various documents that help help people reflect upon the meaning of what's going on currently and reflect more and not just move forward, attack forward without really having a reflection or understanding of the meaning of money experiences, other things, and really smell the roses while, while it's occurring. So that's a, that's a good setup to a, a spiritual text that I brought. I wanted to anchor this into something more than, you know, just Baruch Halevi's ideas. This comes from um, an ancient wisdom text called um, Pirkei Avot, which means um, ethics of our four bearers. And it, and it says the following, and we can just kind of unpack this a little bit. Ben Zoma, who was a well-known sage, says, who is wise? And he answers his question, he or she who learns from all people, which is worthy. We could talk about that. Then he goes on, who is mighty? Who's powerful? He or she who conquers his or her own impulse, right? You can already hear he's locating all of this inside somebody's being not outside, a very different way to look at the world. But he continues, who is wealthy? He or she who is happy with their lot. And it ends with who is honored, he or she who honors all created beings. I just want to come back to who is wealthy, he or she who is happy with his lot, her lot. Mm. And I think about this all the time in my life. I, I, I find myself when I'm drifting from my happiness, oftentimes it's because of this one simple line. This is your takeaway line for the day. Because I'm not happy with my lot, right? I'm not looking at my lot, my my life, my, my things. I'm seeing what I don't have, right? Mm. That's my challenge because that's all of our challenge. When I'm so busy on Amazon, my Amazon Kindle and new books pop up that I don't have and I haven't finished the ones that I'm reading, but I'm happy with them. I start drifting over to all of the unyet purchased books that I want to get. And I find myself leaving happiness because I'm no longer over here in my lot. I was really enjoying this book. And now somehow I'm not quite enjoying it as much. I got to come back to my lot, my book, my moment, my, my stuff. How does that resonate with you? It resonates tremendously because it says so much about being in the present and focusing and gratitude. And you know a lot more about meditation and mindfulness and ancient text than I ever will, for sure. But I, th I think that's a very important thing. They fo focus is a big problem. 
And if we can focus on what we do have, as Napoleon Hill said, thoughts are things. You've got to put the thoughts in your own mind that are going to fertilize your mind in, in a positive, fruitful way. And to the extent that you can focus on your lot, your positives, what you've accomplished, what you've done, just as you've stated, that should lead to, I don't know if it's happiness, but at least contentment. Mm-hmm. And I find that's the big issue with people. It's not necessarily that they're unhappy, but they're discontented in in so many ways. W- wanting something they don't have, wanting more, whether it's money or other things. It's hard to be grateful. And I don't know if this is partially because of the internet technology instantaneous ability to, to, to compare yourself to other people, reality shows, whatever it may be. But I, I find the healthiest people who are content with what they, like you said, with their lot. And maybe the, I'm not sure if I'm. Yeah. You're nailing those two. Well, I would say this, you know, it's easy to pick on our modern, you know, uh, society, our opportunities, internet, whatever. This was written 2,000 years ago. This was like right around when dial-up network, you know, uh, internet was happening. Th- that is what's so amazing about it. This is written at a time when there's no access to information. We we have in one day more information than people in medieval times or other times had in a lifetime. Yet they've come up with these, whether it's the Greeks or whether it's these texts, they came up with the foundation and the bedrock of ideas. And maybe that's because they weren't bombarded with everything and they were able to reflect and to think about these. But why aren't these truisms more embedded in what what I do, for example? When I do wealth planning or financial planning, no one's asking about these things they 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 dance around it they touch it but they don't really want to get this part until very deep in the process if if at all i think though that that's i mean i know that's why we're doing money and soul even juxtaposing those two words it's almost like those don't belong in the same podcast in the same sentence in the same conversation and i think that that's where we've ended up is creating this this binary either or reality when it comes to money. I mean, it's it's amazing to me. I counsel people all day, every day around meaning, purpose, living and leaving a legacy, not just money, but money comes up in every conversation. I have eight clients a day. I'll have eight conversations where money makes its way. I don't think I've ever had a conversation where money in some way, shape or form hasn't entered the meaningful, the meaning conversation. So, you know, this is universal. And yet you're right. We had to bring the meaning guy and the money guy together in order to have this conversation. Well, this is your genius of putting these two things together because there certainly it is an intersection of the soul and the means or the money. And that intersection is so important because if you can get it right and hit that intersection well, it provides a lot of value to one's life. So probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, I really think that we are, 
I just wrote down another five different episodes of you know conversations we can and should have. So I really think we're opening up a, a pipeline of uh, energy and that we uh, will continue to cultivate this, to uh, develop it, to bring these two important conversations of money and soul together. And you know, I'd say to our listeners, and I, I know I speak for both of us, we'd welcome um, your input on what are you interested in hearing about and talking about, because this is a podcast, not just for us to continue our important relationship, uh, Michael and I, and develop these thoughts for each other, but also we want to share them with you and the people you um, are here to take care of and love. Any final uh, words, Mike? No, I, I, I would echo that. I've had some good feedback on our other episodes where people have said that some of these ideas are thought-provoking, just letting them think about some of the issues that they may not have understood before or at least looked at together in parallel of soul and money. And that's really our objective. And I think that's the wonderful part is to open up a conversation. Um, the only um, critique I got, not really a critique, more of a suggestion, that's the word, is um, could I leave, could we leave our listeners with a takeaway, with a to-do? And I'm going to throw this one out there as a takeaway because it has been, I don't memorize that many verses and chapter verse type thing. I'm just not how Jews normally operate. It's not how my mind works, but I, I've always memorized this one in Hebrew, but Hebrew or English, it doesn't matter. Maybe take this line with you. Who is wealthy? You can write it down as we're, like you pull over to the side of the road or just write it down. Who is wealthy? He or she who is happy with their lot. And almost turning that into a mantra to bring you back, you know, to maybe you read it in the morning or you read it in the night at night or you read it before you uh, get on your you know, stock portfolio to check what's happening for the day. But I think if, if my perspective, if you have this as kind of a North Star, it will change the experience of wealth, which is really the nature of our conversation today. It's a per, it's a perfect quote. I think I think there needs to be an episode that's devoted to that title. That that is one of the most powerful things I've ever heard, literally. Well, so thank that, you, my my friend. It's always an honor and pleasure to uh, be sharing these thoughts with you by my side. Thank you, B. All right, talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Money and Soul podcast with Michael Feiner and Rabbi B. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Michael or work with him in your financial planning, visit Feiner.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Rabbi B or work with him to discover deeper meaning in your life, please visit MySoulCentered.org. Until the next time, get out there and live financially and spiritually.